This is a HeadGum Podcast. Vulture's Good One Podcast is sponsored by Prime Video. This August, stand-up has arrived with five new Amazon original specials hitting the streaming service. Let off on August 16th with acclaimed comedian Jim Gaffigan. A week later, on August 23rd, Prime members can laugh along with Alice Wetterland, Alonzo Bowden, Mikey Winfield, and I Mom So Hard. Exclusive stand-up on Amazon, it's all in the delivery. Only on Prime Video. Hello, and welcome to Good One, the podcast about jokes and those who tell them. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This is the finale of our sixth season. I know I've said this before, but I, I, I really love this season. I had by far my most fun doing the show, and I feel like we got so many different perspectives on comedy and creating and the world. Um, the goal of the show has always largely been about showing that not all comedians are one thing. I hope we showed and continue to show how unique the people creating comedy are in the comedy they create. Thank you for listening. That said, uh, I'm not exactly going into hibernation. As we work on the next season, we're going to try something. We're going to revisit episodes from our archive, giving newer listeners a chance to check out the best of our old episodes and allow us an opportunity to look back on some of the breakthrough moments for the podcast. Next week, we'll go back to where a lot of this show first started, my interview with Jerry Seinfeld. But now, Gilbert Gottfried. Gilbert is an interesting case. If you're under the age of 40 or so, you probably have a certain perspective of the guy. He's this loud, dirty old man who was also in Aladdin and other kids' movies for some reason. You might also associate him with a style of classic jokey joke comedy that hasn't really been in vogue for over a half century. The joke we're talking about this episode is The Aristocrats, which shouldn't come as a surprise to some of you, as it is one of comedy's most famous jokes, and Gilbert is the person probably most associated with telling it. That's because of the 2005 Pendulette and Paul Provenza documentary about the joke, and its history is a sort of secret handshake in which comedians would tell their version of the joke backstage at comedy clubs and festivals and such. There's a long history, but a basic structure. A person, usually with their family, enters a talent agent's office and performs their act. You can't see, but I said act with air quotes, because what is described is a bunch of disgusting, mostly sexual, sometimes violent stuff. After a while, the agent asks, well, what do you call this act? pause the aristocrats uh it's much funnier when you actually hear the middle part i I promise gilbert is known for doing it largely because in the documentary they share the story of an infamous version he performed at the friars club rose of hugh hefner in september 2001 if you haven't heard this legendary story and we do get into it in the episode gilbert told a joke alluding to september 11th in new york weeks after the attacks and it went uh terribly There were boos. Someone yelled too soon. Cornered, Gilbert does what he does. He told a version of the aristocrats that completely turned the entire audience and show around. It was a laugh people desperately needed. The version of the aristocrats you're about to hear is from his 2005 album, Dirty Jokes. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't warn you that this joke is really dirty. Dirty isn't a strong enough word, actually. It's gross. It's violently disgusting. That is the point. The joke is meant to create a context in which it's crystal clear that everything said inside of it is wrong. There's a theory of comedy I actually really like called benign violation, which says for someone to laugh, there has to be some sort of violation of norms, but also must seem safe enough that the audience member doesn't actually feel in danger. Both scales vary per joke, and everyone has their own scale. So what is said in this joke is extremely awful, but it hypothetically is benign because it's clear the teller and the audience understands the context and everyone is in on the joke. 
and here I am providing even more context to make it seem even more benign. I'm aware this is way more explanation than I usually give before I play the joke. I just know a lot of you probably listen to this podcast commuting to work, and I felt if I didn't say this stuff, it'd be like a really aggro way to start your day, and I didn't want that. Not in our season finale. So, coming to the mic, put your hands together for The Aristocrats. Well, I got uh, one more quick one. (laughs) Do end it, sweet. A talent agent is sitting in his office. A null American family walks in. Ah, father and mother, son and daughter, a big fluffy dog. The family has blonde hair and blue eyes and bright skin. And uh, the talent agent looks up and goes, all right, let's see what you do. So the father drops his pants and takes off his shirt. He's totally naked. He undresses his wife, starts fucking his wife on the floor. (laughs) Then the son drops his pants, takes his shirt off, and uh, his sister also takes all our clothes off. The son and the daughter start fucking on the floor, too. And the dog is pissing on them. starts blowing the sun. The father starts fist-fucking the daughter in the ass. And and the father, just for your information, is an ex-marine who has really muscular arms. The type with the tattoo of a battleship on it. And, and, uh, you know, and he looks like he just ate a can of spinach type arm. Fucking the daughter in the ass as the daughter is licking out her brother's asshole. And the brother at the time is chewing on the dog's balls. Now, the dog starts fucking the mother. And he's fucking the mother while the mother is eating out the while she is fist-fucking her brother in the ass. If you're not keeping up with this, I'll start at the beginning. It's important if you miss any part, then the joke makes no sense. Then the father starts fucking his son in the ass as the son is eating his mother's cunt the dog in the ass. Because really, why leave the dog out? That would be wrong. It would be very wrong. Now, the son breaks off a leg from one of the chairs and shoves it up his sister's asshole and starts fucking her with it as the father takes a lamp and shoves it into her cunt as the mother is licking out the father's asshole as the mother is eating the dog's ass. Now, the dog takes a tremendous shit on the floor. Now, you'd think if, if I could pause for 
a second you think that at this point the talent agent would go, oh, for God's sakes, I'm getting on the phone and calling the police. But no. I'm just saying, you know, in case you've ever questioned that. Now, the son walks in with cables out of the trunk of a car, like jumper cables. So he attaches the jumper cables to his father's balls and starts running electricity to him as he's licking out his father's asshole, as the father's eating his daughter out, as he's fucking the dog in the ass. This sounds like one of those prayers on the Jewish holidays that you have to read. And he fucks in the ass, and the dog fucks the cat, and the cat fucks the boy, and the boy fucks the dog. Amen, amen. And little kid, little kid, and the fire put out the dog that fucked the cat, that fucked the girl. And, and then the son climbs up on a table, puts a noose around his neck and jumps off. And through auto-asphyxiation, see, this is educational, you start choking and that makes you have a big orgasm. Try it when you get home. <laughs> no, really, really, I'd like you to. I've, I've looked at a few of you and I don't see that it would be a major loss. <laughs> if any of you hung yourselves tonight and the cop said, well, he was, he uh, shot where they came from and shoved them in their cuts. And the rats are chewing the insides of their, of their cunts and blood is coming out. And then that, of course, makes the father and son very horny. You've all been in that. Any of you who have ever been in front of, like, your wife and daughter who have rats in their cunts, you go, oh, I gotta get my dick in there right away. chewing on their dick, so now like cunt blood and dick blood is pouring out of their cunt. And now the son, who has been cut down from the noose, is squeezing his pimples into his mother's cunt, into his mother's cunt, and it's like filled with pimple uh, juice, and then he starts shoving his face in and eating it out. This is based on a true story. He's eating her out. Now, so the, so the daughter squeezes her blackhead into, all over her father's dick. And the dog shits on his dick. And then the son and daughter start blowing the father with the shit and the blackhead on his dick. And now their face is covered with shit and piss and cum and, and also uh, sweat. Ooh, sweat, sorry. Sweat. Sweat's disgusting. <laughs> Ugh, sweat. Oh, it's horrible. Ooh, sweat. Stop with the sweat already. <laughs> now, 
that two rats get pulled out of their cunts and they're jerked off, and they're shooting cum, and they're blowing the rats, and their faces get covered with rat cum, and they shit and piss, and the, the families come with shit and piss and rat cum, and a little sweat. Ooh, don't like that. And then the, the father takes a tremendous shit on the floor, and the mother pulls out her glass eye, and the son starts fucking her in the eye socket, and fills up her eye socket with rat cum and rat shit and rat piss and the dead rats, and he starts fucking her in the eye socket, and then the dog the rats heads off and they start the son and uh, the, the father start fucking the rats in the neck <laughs> and believe it or not the father with these enormous arms is able to fist fuck a rat in the asshole because <laughs> they have amazingly elasticity in a rat if you catch a rat try it. I'm telling you you'll me for it later. <laughs> you thank me for it later. You, you fucking oh, and hey, you fucked around to the asshole. And that, uh, and and they're fucking and sucking for about like five hours in shit and piss and cum and pimple pus and blackheads and ooh sweat. <laughs> they stand up and they take a bow. <laughs> and the talent agent, the talent agent, nonplussed by this, I like to throw in a big word, nonplussed by this, goes, hmm, that's an interesting act you have there. What do you call yourself? And they say, the aristocrats. <laughs> Good night. We are here with the, the man behind the version of the joke you just heard, Gilbert Godfrey. Thank you so much for joining me. Ha, thank you. <laughs> this, this is kind of like, uh, like, Doing NPR, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I yeah. have glasses on. It's like a real NPR vibe. Yeah, I'm I'm talking about blowjob jokes, <laughs> but it's like uh, we're gonna talk to Gilbert Gottfried about. He's gonna talk about blowjobs and and getting fucked in the ass. Exactly. Uh, so let's start from the sort of uh, very beginning. For those who don't know, to your knowledge, what is the the history of the aristocrats joke? Or do you know any stories about sort of its history? Uh, I I know very little about the history of it. I I know um, some comic told it to me years ago, and I don't remember. You know, they have like two possible punchlines. Yeah. It's either the aristocrats or the sophisticados. <laughs> yeah. I I think I've heard it described as. It's the journey and not the destination. It's yeah. like it's all getting there. When you actually say the punch, in normally in a joke, the punchline is is what the payoff. Yeah, the payoff with this joke done right is the whole setup. 
Yeah. And then uh, punchline goes nowhere. Yeah. It's a real letdown by the end. Do you remember? Do you remember that first time hearing it? What you thought? Like you might not remember who told you, but you remember just sort of hearing it and what you thought. Like, oh, I'm going to remember. Uh, yeah, I remember. Now here's here's a, a weird story. It's like one time. Uh, Richard Belzer had a brother named Len, mm-hmm. and I told a joke to him, and then he wanted me to tell it to someone else, and I did, and then to someone else, and uh, he said each time that I told it, I made it a little different, and I was uh, elaborating on it, and he said, you know what, it would make a really funny film. Yeah. You just telling that joke over and over, a whole movie just based on the aristocrats joke. And I said, you know, that's the dumbest <laughs> fucking idea I've ever heard in my life. Uh, no, no, I, I would never do that. Yeah. And sure enough, then uh, Pendulet does it. Do, is it a thing that the documentary made it seem like comedians were telling this joke all the time? How often... Are you in, were you in situations or are you in situations where this joke is actually being told? I don't know. Yeah. I I mean honestly, I I I think a lot has been said that it's uh oh every comedian knows it like it's a hidden handshake, yeah. secret handshake. I don't know if every comedian knows it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, a lot of people do. I uh you could say like, you know, Garbage man, you know, you you go, uh, uh, every garbage man says, hey, want to go out for pizza? That's a secret thing that every garbage man tells. Sure. And then you do a whole documentary and you say, uh, I'll gather up some uh, garbage men and I'll tell them you want to go out for pizza. <laughs> and then they'll all say, oh, my God, yeah, if you want to be in the sanitation department, that's how you get in. Do you remember any specific stories of hearing it other than the Belzerman or telling it of either people you told us you the first time or just different people that did it much differently than you ever expected? I never heard his version, but I heard Buddy Hackett uh, used to tell it. And, and sometimes he would tell it during commercial breaks on The Tonight Show. And uh, that that way, when they get back from a commercial, the audience would be laughing and yeah. everyone would go, what just happened? <laughs> but... I, I heard a lot of the older comics told it. I heard I I heard I think Jack Benny. Yeah. Um and that one person said and I and it wasn't in the documentary, but I remember on one episode of The Odd Couple, uh they had these two old people standing there and uh Tony Randall says to them, and what do you call yourself? And they say, the aristocrats. Oh, wow. And so it's like, you know, little inside joke. Before it's like a thing that you did on stage much later, when you're doing it sort of for friends, do you, is it a thing where you sort of develop a signature version? Are there sort of things that you end up repeating? Well, I think the trick to it is not to repeat yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, too much. So, uh, you know, if you say, uh, and then they bring out a monkey and it fucks you in the ass, 
you know, you got to at least change it to a kangaroo. Sure. <laughs> An animal has to show yeah, up, but yeah, a different animal yeah, each time. Yeah, it has to be. <laughs> or a robot. Sure. It doesn't have to be a living. It's just sort of a, there has to be like a third act twist. Yes, yes. It could be an android. Yes. And had he performed it on stage really before the Hugh Hefner roast? You know, I don't think so. I don't think I I uh I told it on stage. I wasn't planning on telling it that yeah. night. Why hadn't you told it on stage, do you think, beforehand? I don't know. I mean, I don't always do it on stage uh, no. now. Yeah. You know, just in rare instances. So I'll tell something more filthy, but just won't do that one. You've, you've told the story uh, a million times, but for the million and first time. Uh, so can you tell the, the, the story of the Hugh Hefner roast? Okay. Uh, this was like a few days after September 11th. and 2001. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it was uh, just a few days after, and they were going to have the U. Hefner roast, and, um, and it was going to be in New York, making matters even worse. And it was, it was very strange because for months afterwards— in New York, there were black clouds yeah. sold through the city. And um, there, there, I mean, all through the world, it was a shocking event. But New York, forget it. And so there was talk about canceling it. And then they figured they'd go on with it anyway. And then there were a lot of people just afraid to fly. So mm-hmm. they were canceling their flights. So it was like whoever you could get. And I remember the first thing I did when I got up on stage was uh, Ice-T had just been on. And he was saying, uh, you know, just rambling on about how uh, I'm going to stab you white motherfuckers (laughs) and I'm going to rape you white bitches. And so I I got up very angrily and started yelling, hey, it's like Ice-T did my whole uh, act right now, so I'll do it anyway. I'm going to follow you white motherfuckers home and rape you white bitches. You see, it's such a strong bit, it still works. I'm gonna shoot some of you white motherfuckers. See, when a joke works, it just works no matter how many times you hear it. And and then I I wanted to be the First one, you know, to address the elephant in the room. And before we say what, what, why do you, what is it in you that you're like, I want to be that? Did you know all, like, going up to it, like, I'm going to be, make sure I'm the first person who does this? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's, maybe I'm self-destructive. Maybe I'm just playing stupid. But if someone tells me don't do something, yeah. then I want to do it. Uh, is this just how you process grief or horrible things? Is you, is this your natural inclination? Well, it it definitely is is part of it. It's like I I've always said a tragedy and comedy are roommates. Wherever tragedy's around, comedy's a few feet behind him sticking his tongue out yeah. and making obscene gestures. And it's it's like when you go to a funeral, 
you know, the guy uh, standing at the podium will start to say embarrassing stories about the guy in the box, and people will laugh. And then a lot of times you'll see people lean over to the person sitting next to them with a smirk on their face, and the other person will hold their hands over their face like, oh, I shouldn't be laughing at this. (laughs) So back to the night. Is this a joke you had written beforehand? Yeah, I thought of it before, and um, so uh, sorry. So you, I should have you say what the joke was. And then... Oh yeah. So I said uh, I have to leave early tonight. I have to catch a flight to L.A. I couldn't get a direct flight. We have to make a stop at the Empire State Building, and forget it. Yeah. I lost an audience bigger than anybody has ever lost an audience. And people were booing and hissing. One guy yelled out too soon, which I thought meant I didn't take a long enough pause between the setup and the punchline. Had anyone said that beforehand? Like, was that the invention of saying? That's (laughs) the first time I heard it. And I was quite proud of that (laughs) because I I always remember like I yelled too soon. Yeah. You know, it's like and then I feel like, well, uh, okay, what makes it soon enough? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like... It's I, like, soon's okay, but it's too soon. Too soon, <laughs> too yeah. Is the, the... It, it's, it's kind of like, to me, I could make an argument that by me making it too soon, I'm more sensitive than people who wait and think it's okay. Yeah. Because it's like, you can make a joke about the Titanic... No one's going to attack you for that. And so, because you're a sensitive person, you waited all those years. So uh, by being a sensitive person and making a Titanic joke, you're saying, fuck everybody (laughs) who died on the Titanic. Uh, That's years ago. We don't care about them. Even their grandkids are dead and fuck their grandkids. I'm a sensitive person. And I feel like with me, you could make the argument that when I say it and it's too soon and everyone goes, oh, my God, how could he do that? It's so such a horrible thing. It's acknowledging it's a horrible thing. Well, it's clear that it's wrong because they're doing it like it's it's so soon that there's no way anyone would think you knew it was the right thing to say. Yes, yes. In fact, I, I feel like bad taste jokes uh, have their own built-in apology because yeah. everyone is going, oh, my God, you shouldn't say that. And someone has to say the, like, in so much as we assume joking is good, someone has to do the first joke. Yes. And you, as a generously take the bullet on that. <laughs> <laughs> Were there other jokes you considered? I'm I'm a Christ figure. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you sacrificed for this. Yeah. Are there other jokes about uh, round nine eleven you think you were considering? Uh, no, just that one. You're like that's exactly yeah, because because uh, I'm a bad writer. <laughs> <laughs> so if I could come up with one joke in a year, I'm go. Oh wow. I what, better sit down. What did you think was going to happen? I don't know. Uh, which shows how my mind works. I wasn't even thinking in yeah. advance that, uh, oh, this might not be the crowd for it. <laughs> it was so interesting because it's a joke that if you said it today, not right out, it only makes sense in a room of people who have just experienced 9-11. Yes. Because it doesn't totally make sense unless everyone 
has been seeing the smoke from the destruction. And so now if you said it, it, it would be like saying, you know, fuck the people who died on September 11th. And I'm a sensitive person yes, exactly. for waiting. So the joke happens. You lose a room more than anything else. Yes. Do you have any remember what memory of what it felt like in that moment? Oh, my God. I was like, I felt like I was floating through outer space. Getting back to the Titanic, I felt like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio when he loses grip yeah. of that door at the end. And he's going in to the bottom of the frozen ocean. Yeah. And, and so then I felt when I was up there, it was kind of like, well, I'm at the bottom level of hell now. And this show, uh, this show seems pretty much over. What do you say after this? And then uh, that popped into my head because I figured, yeah, why not go to even a lower level of hell? See if there's, you know, and that that was it. You just started. Yeah. And I just started. And it's, it's like it almost seemed like immediately the audience was turning around. Yeah. They were like laughing and cheering and just the biggest laughs I ever heard and the comics were laughing and the audience was going wild and uh, somebody said some writer said it was like I had performed a mass tracheotomy on the crowd. Yeah, I had it written down. It goes, tears ran throughout the Hilton Ballroom as Mr. Gottfried had performed a collective tracheotomy on the audience, delivering oxygen and laughter past the grief and ash that had blocked their passageways. So what the fuck are you interviewing me for? <laughs> well, I just had that one yeah. part. No, go on. <laughs> That's all I wrote down. Go on and read that the shit. The whole thing. And don't bother me. Um, I could have been home watching, uh, I don't know, Two Broke Girls <laughs> or something. But uh, in a way, you set up yourself. Your first joke that they did not respond to was a way, was you being the first person to make a joke about it. And though the aristocrats is not a joke about it, it is a joke that says, like, this is a joke I'm telling, and 9-11 happened. Everyone else is doing jokes, and they're yeah. sort of ignoring it. I always loved, like, I was always a big fan of Henny Youngman. Mm -hmm. And Henny Youngman would go up there, and, you know, they'd be uh, roasting whoever, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And Henny Youngman would go up and goes. Uh, it's a pleasure being at this roast for Ronald Reagan. My wife bakes a cake. She, <laughs> <laughs> she just did. She yeah, would just do this. And it had nothing to do with anything going on. <laughs> what did you sort of learn from this? What was your takeaway? Uh, nothing. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a smart person. <laughs> you know, Fair. I'm one of those. That touches a fence, gets an electrical shock, and goes, oh, well, I've just happened that one time. Let me touch it again. Let me touch it ten more times. So speaking of you touching an electrical fence another time, and, and I do not feel like we need to rehash the entire story of the Affleck and Japanese tsunami stuff. Did uh, something happen there? Yeah. Something <laughs> real big, and you or end up talking about it all the time. You can find it, but... Uh, to quickly summarize, the Japanese tsunami happened. You tweeted some stuff. People got mad. Affleck was like, you can't be the duck anymore. Um, <laughs> but going through these two things, uh, and so in the Aristocrats documentary, George Carlin talks about context in comedy. Uh, 
what is your relationship to context? What have you learned about the importance of context? Do you care about context? Do you not care about context? It's it, it's it's a weird thing. Like when people say, "Are you sorry about what you did with the tsunami jokes?" and I always say the same thing. I'm always sorry about losing a dime. Sure, but uh, I, it just feels I can't with a straight face say. Oh, gee, I feel sorry I made jokes. Yeah, because that's what yeah. you do. Yeah, it's like they were reporting on that. Like you you think someone blew up the the moon or something. <laughs> it was that big an event on the news. And they would report it, and they would always say, they never used the term jokes. Sure. They would always say comments and remarks. Because if you say jokes... In your mind, your mind immediately goes, what the <laughs> fuck are we getting all upset about a joke for? Yeah, why is a news person talking about jokes? I mean, yeah. it, it was a lesson for a lot of people of like that some people don't treat. Like you remove your Gilbert Gottfried to yourself and to the people who know you are. But yes. like remove that. Then it's just like guys said mean things immediately after a terrible thing happened. Yes, <laughs> yes. And and it's if like, you remove comedian and jokes, it is man makes mean famous man makes mean statements of after a terrible thing happens. Yeah. Uh, while while we're in this area, I wanted to ask uh, about a specific word choice in, in the version of the aristocrats that we play on Dirty Jokes. You use a word for uh, let's say female genitalia that <laughs> some would argue, especially by a man, <laughs> it, is hurtful. Um, why do you use it? Why do you f- why do you feel like that is the right use word to use in this joke? Well, it it's kind of like if you use a cleaner word, then uh, what's the point in telling the joke? You know, to do, I could do a clean version of the aristocrats where I go uh, and uh, then they uh, hug each other and then they uh, kiss each other on the cheek. The aristocrats. In this context, especially, it's it's you. Especially, the album is called "Dirty Jokes," right? So it's like yeah. it's not a dirty joke if you don't do it. Like you're, it's the same thing like you're saying about doing the nine eleven joke, which is you're using it to signify that you know it's wrong to use it. Yeah, and that's what I mean when I say every one of those jokes has its own hidden built-in apology. Sure. Because everybody, you don't have to say afterwards. Oh, it was bad, and I had no idea. I, you know, I had no idea when I said "blowjob" that that was a dirty term, yeah. and you don't know, say it to your grandmother. <laughs> uh, I used to say it to my grandmother, but only on the Jewish holidays, surprisingly. Um, you got a lot of positive response from telling the the Hefner roast joke, and uh, and also how it replayed in the Aristocrats. Uh, including, as you write in a book, one famous fan backstage at the Tonight Show. I was wondering if you wanted to share that story. Oh, uh, I somebody called out my name and I turned around, which I have a habit of doing when someone calls out my name. Sure. And it was Harrison Ford, and 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 he said to me that he complimented me on my telling of the aristocrats joke and how much it made him laugh. And and it's this is one of those stories that I cringe every time I think of it. It's kind of like any time I've tried to ask a girl out. I remember every 
fucking word I said and go, oh, why, why did you say that? That's my whole life. So instead of the right thing to do, which would have said, which would have been, oh, I thank you, you know, I love Blade Runner. You know, that would have been fine. And he would have been flattered and I could have walked away like a human being. Sure. But I, I go, I figure, oh, I got to be funny now. So I said, oh, thank you. And your name is? A- and I, I kind of felt like, I don't know if he caught that it was a joke or I didn't know. But either way, he walked away going, <laughs> boy, Gilbert Gottfried's an asshole. <laughs> uh, we'll be back with more Gilbert Gottfried after this word from our sponsors. Vulture's Good One podcast is sponsored by Prime Video. This August, stand-up has arrived with five new Amazon original specials hitting the streaming service, led off on August 16th with four-time Grammy-nominated comedian Jim Gaffigan. In his special, Quality Time, he explores everything from dog birthdays to the real reason parents lie to their children. The laughter continues a week later on August 23rd, when Prime members can discover and laugh along with the diverse, relatable humor of Alonzo Bowden, I'm Mom So Hard, Alice Wetterland, and Mikey Winfield. Exclusive stand-up on Amazon, it's all in the delivery. Only on Prime Video. We are back with Gilbert Gottfried. Uh, is it after the, the Hefner roast that you decide to tell joke jokes on stage in earnest? Like, what was the decision to, like, eventually you had the DVD, but, like, to sort of, like, oh, I'm going to specifically do this? I mean, a bunch of times... Early on in my career, like especially like, you know, when I used to go on at the comedy clubs for no money, sometimes in the middle of it to amuse myself, I would tell old dirty jokes Mm -hmm. and it would make me laugh. And uh, but then after the aristocrats, I had an idea. I want to I want to make a buck selling merch and uh and i came up with a i'll i'll tell dirty jokes i know enough of them in comparison to having an act uh, you know there's people to describe especially earlier on you're you would go on something with you just go on and whatever it is you'd have no act you'd you'd often be described as a like a jazz musician what is it about these jokes as a person with that style, is it like, oh, these are standards and I can sort of play on top of them? Uh, yeah, I, I guess so. I guess it is like uh, uh, being a jazz musician. I remember one thing I used to do when I was on stage. I would ask the musicians to come back and play like a jazz number. Oh, really? And I would tell the jokes in a slow, drawn-out, beatnik kind of way. <laughs> or sometimes have them play classical music, and I'd say it in a very dignified way. So, the joke itself. Um, the version you do on the album, I imagine there's parts that you remember that don't, but I will tell you things you say, and you can respond yes. to okay. what it was like <laughs> saying it. Uh, when you start in on when you know you're about to do the aristocrats is there anything in your head you're like oh like maybe we'll go here are there signposts uh no no i just uh like whatever happening when i'm on stage you just start yeah yeah i don't have it really set up i don't ahead of time like at home uh he working alone going mm, okay uh, suck the dick that that'll do at that point <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah, I, I talk to comedians about improvising a lot, and 
there's sort of two sides. There's sort of people that when they're riffing, they're like very aware of everything that's happening. It's like their brain is firing and they yes. can see it. Or they're completely out of it. They're like floating and and like 10 minutes will pass and they are like, I don't know what I just said. Are yeah. you are you hyper alert? Or are you hyper sort of like detect? Oh, that's an interesting one because uh, if I'm lucky, and those times that I've been riffing where I've I've been where my mind is awake. Yeah, uh, I, it's so different than bits that I've been doing for years, where I'm up there and I could be working out mathematical problems <laughs> in my head as I'm saying yeah. the joke. I mean, that's how boring it is to me, and how little effort it takes. And then when I'm riffing, it's like I go, oh, my God, where is this all exploding from? <laughs> it kind of reminds me there's that part in, uh, uh, oh, was it uh, Network News uh, with um, Albert news? Brooks? About broadcast News, yeah. Broadcast News, Broadcast News, uh, where he's teaching him, William Hurt is teaching him how to deliver the news and he said, when you find yourself reading it, stop, and you have to sell it. And yeah. a lot of times when I'm on stage, I think, oh, you know, let me let me sell this. Yeah. Because after a while, it's like, you know, you're going, But in this joke or just in general, when it's going well, you're there and you're, yes. you can feel yourself thinking of the thing. Yes, yes. And it might not be, it's it's less that you are even, com you see the idea coming and you don't know where it's coming from. Yeah. Uh, so in this version, you start out and you really describe the family uh, and you, you make a point to say that blonde hair, blue eyes, which I feel yeah. like coming from a Jewish person means something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> why, why, set, why set it up this way for you? What do you like about that? I don't know if you do it every time, but in this. Well. It it's like it it implies purity, mm -hmm. um, and well, it's it's so funny because um, the whole way, the whole idea of the old American family, blue blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, Christian, was like in movies and TV shows, all invented by the Jews. <laughs> The Jews invented the white picket fence like, oh, these are how those people are. It's like I used to watch these shows like, you know, that would come on like Andy Griffith or uh, Hee Haw or Mama's Place. And I think, oh, you know, I'm getting it's a little foreign place that I'm looking into. Mm -hmm. But then I realize, you know, and now when you watch it, it's like a head writer, uh, Lou Rosenblatt. <laughs> and so this is your version of that. Yeah. This is your I yes. I version of an idealized <laughs> Goy family. Uh, so Which is my new series, sure. Goy Family. <laughs> Goy family. Yes. So pretty quickly in this version, uh, they all start having sex, and the dog <laughs> pisses. Uh, it's important <laughs> for you for the dog to piss first and then shit later. <laughs> or why do you think that's good practice? I've always felt that uh, just a life lesson. Mm -hmm. uh, my, you know, someone asked me, what's the most important thing I know about life? It would be... Piss first <laughs> and shit later. Because <laughs> if you shit first and piss later, your whole day is off. 
Uh, so they have more sex. Uh, and then <laughs> it's so clear that you enjoy that this is happening. Uh, so you, the, this is a thing that you do in multiple versions I've seen you do of this joke, which is the dad fists the daughter, and you note... <laughs> And you note the size of his forearm. Yes. So in this version, you say he's a pr- Marine on the DVD. You say uh, he he's literally has a Popeye-like arm. Uh, yes. What do you like about this imagery? Yeah. Well, because you, uh, you could feel it. <laughs> <laughs> you picture what it would be like if Popeye fist-fucked you. After having the spinach, and you hear da 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 da, and then you hear the uh, the ship whistle that comes out of his pipe, and then him fist fucking you in the ass. That would be really, uh, really <laughs> intense. Uh, around this point, you say, uh, "If you're not keeping up, I'll start from the beginning. If you miss any yeah. part, it doesn't make sense." What you do, uh, you do also the Hefner roast. What do you like about checking in like that? Uh, yeah, because it's it's like the idea that it's it's a story that must be followed. Yes. Like, uh, oh wait a second, uh, the daughter blows the dog. Oh, I didn't hear that. That's why it made no sense. So then, uh, a beat that I've seen you do a few times with this is. You stop and be like, I know you're probably wondering why didn't the agent call the cops? Yes. And you go, well, that's a, t- that's a different story. Because well, it is. It's one of those things when you listen to setups of jokes or things and you go, you know, this this really could have been solved another way. You know? <laughs> Do you have a sense of when it's time to say things like that? Or it's like, oh, the audience, like... What are you monitoring for what the, how the audience is reacting? Uh, no, no, that take I, I don't think about at all. Sometimes yeah. just stuff like that pops into my head. <laughs> um, the sun gets jumper cables. Then, then around this point, you say it sounds like one of the prayers from the Jewish holidays. <laughs> I, I remember, oh, I remember in one version of the aristocrats, I said either that night or when I did a second version for mm-hmm. the documentary, I I just ad-libbed also, just something that popped into my head. Uh, this is a, uh, a favorite uh, practice uh, in the family of character actor Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> and... And now Kevin McCarthy's that actor. He was in, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatcher. Mm-hmm. He's one of those, if you saw him, you'd know him immediately. Sure. And he, he spoke like that all the time. And and it's like, run, run, uh, pods are attacking. So I was talking to this actor or to an interviewer who knew Kevin McCarthy. He was like 100 mm-hmm. at the time. And he said, uh, uh, are you familiar with this comedian Gilbert Gottfried? And he, I, I, I think he was vaguely. And he said, well, uh, Gilbert tells this joke where he talks about, you know, a daughter fucking her brother and the dog fucking the mother and then blah, 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 blah. And he goes, and this is a favorite practice at the household of character actor Kevin McCarthy. And Kevin McCarthy says, ah, that's offensive. (laughs) And uh, someone said, well, you know, Gilbert takes things overboard. And he goes, 
I'm not a character actor. I'm a star. <laughs> um. So then the boy autoerotically. <laughs> then the boy uh, hangs himself yes. to do autoerotic fixation, and then you tell the audience it'd be fine if some of them uh, hanged themselves as well. Yes. So you just, I imagine you. You got to the point where you're like, oh, this is an idea. What if you autoerotic? Fix the yes. H. And then your brain's like, maybe I should go tell the audience to yes. kill themselves. <laughs> uh, so this is the point which, as you mentioned, uh, an animal comes in and it's rats. <laughs> Wait, an animal comes? Yeah, you know, you said at, at some point there's different things. It can be a deer yes. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Tonight, This night it was rats. <laughs> um and then you uh, slip into, I believe, a Cosby impression, <laughs> which was, this is 2005. Yeah, which wasn't, uh, it, it, that was one of my jokes. That's one of the things I did that became more modern with time. <laughs> yeah. Back then, it was like, oh, Cosby, uh, what, he used to have that show years ago. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, Cosby, yeah, yeah. So then uh, the kids start popping their pimples, and uh, I will say, this is where it gets <laughs> really, really gross. Um, oh, that's just where it gets gross. I know, I know people, I won't say who have, who around this point skipped ahead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what is... Uh, how has your uh, how has your relationship to the audience evolved in terms of like how much they want you want them to enjoy something and how much you want to enjoy and who cares like how much you do revel in them not enjoying things and you know I I do enjoy them not enjoying it a lot of the time where like there are times when people get up and walk out and I feel like oh I still got it Because you don't know if there's a line you crossed if there isn't some people that are like, well, that is, I don't, you're not crossing a line if no one is actually pushed back. Yes, on. yes. Uh, and and yeah. it's like there, uh, one person I like to quote a lot because he says something intelligent and I don't, so I have to quote. Uh, George Carlin's line was, uh, it's the duty of a comedian to find out where the line is drawn and deliberately cross over it. Yeah. Because, I mean, really, in their day, you know, Charlie Chaplin and the Marx Brothers were crossing the line. Yeah. That was like, that was like a lot of it was like, oh, my God, what did they just do there? It's like uh, the I always think of the train coming through the screen. Like that was the height of like a horror film. Yes, at the time. yes. Because <laughs> people, it's a there's a theory on comedy called benign violation, which is essentially like it has to be some sort of violation and has to seem benign, right? So what ultimately what you're doing is like it's this is such a violation of like what is normal, but except it's coming from you, and there should be seen as safe because it's like this guy just says this stuff. You you make such a practice of crossing whatever line that you're like, oh, that's the thing that this guy does. Yeah. Oh, you came up around the same time, give or take, as Larry David and Andy Kaufman, who had their own sort of complicated relationship yeah. to audiences. In what ways do you feel like what you do and what they did is similar or different? Andy Kaufman was uh, before, but I remember I used to, he used to pop up in the clubs that I was hanging out waiting to get on at like the catch and the comic strip 
No, well, like not before the comic strip. It was Catch and the Improv. And I mean, I remember him doing an entire uh, hundred bottles of beer on the wall. Yeah. And it's like you go, oh my God, he's going to do the entire thing. And that was something. And I remember Larry David used to, uh, he would kind of get angry on stage, not just on stage off too, sure. but he would get angry. And sometimes he'd get into fights with people in the audience. And uh, one time he would get into a fight with this drunk and the drunk said, oh yeah, well your mother fucks my dog. And Larry David said, oh yeah? Well, I bet your dog doesn't enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting at at this point of the joke where, you know, the rats are decapitated and is you forget that then the parts where the family's all having sex with each other is like normal and quaint. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Then it's like, oh, okay. The father's fucking the daughter. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, more sex happens, and this comes my favorite part of the entire joke. You list all the there's blood and there's uh, shit and there's piss and there's all stuff, and then you go sweat. Yeah, I oh sweat, that's disgusting. Ugh, sweat. <laughs> it's it is so whimsical. I would describe <laughs> it. It's such a silly. Do you feel like, especially when you do it, do do you feel like this is a very adult joke or a very childlike joke? I, I'm going to say it pretty childish and immature, <laughs> which is what I'm good at. Yeah. So the rats are now decapitated. <laughs> They're the, the boy's having sex with his mom's yeah. eye hole. Uh, and then for no reason, <laughs> no reason, you start doing Jerry Seinfeld. I, I don't know how I started <laughs> another thing. I just started slipping in. And I forget, what did I say? I, I, literally, you just sort of like start the joke over as if you're Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. A family walks into a talent agent's office and the father fucks the mother and the mother starts jerking off the son. It sounded something like that. Yeah. At, at this point, if you're really go, it's essentially like every all of your reference points are just available at you. You're like, anything yeah. that I have can, it's like yes. a kitchen sink joke. Yeah. So it's like, I haven't done Jerry. Let me throw this Yes, one. yes. The next thing, which is very funny, is you then sort of like fast forward five hours. <laughs> then you go, and then they keep on doing that for five hours. <laughs> um, when do you get a? How do you get a sense of it's time to wrap up? Is it more about you or more about the audience? I think it's more about me at that point. You're like, just like I got nothing else. Yeah, I don't feel like being up here any longer. That and that's, I guess, it's like I threw Jerry Seinfeld in there, and that has. You're just like I guess is that I. Yeah. Whatever the barrel is, I scraped it. Jerry Seinfeld yes. was there. <laughs> so, uh, cut to the agent. He is nonplussed. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why is he nonplussed? <laughs> yeah, that that's uh, yeah that, that's another another amazing part of the story, is that or with every joke you go well. Uh, why wouldn't he react? Why didn't he call the cops? Why why isn't he going, oh, my God, I'll have to have this office destroyed because <laughs> there's mountains of shit and piss and cum in it, you know? It's, so the contrast to you is just, it's funny that you're like, what is the word that is the most opposite of everything that just happened? Yeah, yeah, it, uh, yeah. 
Uh, and what do they call it? The aristocrats. Yeah. Do you do any? Do you try to do any? How do you sort of symbolize the aristocrats' finish? It seems like different comedians have different ways of like the end. Uh yeah. It's always the aristocrats. You know, like it's a big, big show with the arms outstretched. And in the documentary, Drew Carey came up with like that little snap, snap thing, yeah. that he saw with the I, I like the snap. It's snap's it, very good. It's a funny ending because as you say, it's it's like a bit of an anti-joke, but then you but you do it as if it's a big finish. Yes. Like you're be like, you're telling the audience to laugh now, but especially at this point. Everyone who is hearing your version of it knows you're doing the aristocrats. Yeah, it's it's the weakest version of the it's it's the weakest part of the joke is the punchline. There's a debate of how much this joke is a satire. Do you, is any of that you know I, for you it's of these blonde hair, blue eyed people? But is that in it at all? Like ultimately, you're like, do you feel like this is a satire of either aristocratic people or of show business? Uh, I don't know. It's like, and and it's it always happens when you start talking. The worst thing to do is talk about comedy. Sure. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm making a whole yeah. career out of it. <laughs> it it's kind of like cutting a frog apart to see how it hops, and then all of a sudden, how come it's not hopping now? <laughs> and yet, I'm hopping, yeah. hopping all the <laughs> way to the bank. I promise you, Covert. <laughs> um, so. In in the documentary, Lisa Lampanell explains that no one tells this joke on stage because comedians don't tell jokes on stage because they don't want to see they don't want to be seen as a big old hack. Uh, in past that interv- never stopped me. I know. Yeah. In past <laughs> interviews, you've talked about how much you hate hacky comedians and you used to sort of do hacky jokes like ironically, and then you sort of did them straight and would want the audience to kind of get a sense if it's ironic or not. So, what is your sort of philosophy or evolution of doing joke jokes on stage? Uh, I don't know. That would take some thought. Sure. And it would take some intelligence. Uh, I I don't know. I just enjoy doing them. It was just an instinct of like, you're, it would, it's the same thing of like, you're on stage and you're, if you're, pr- to keep yourself present or whatever, you would like tell jokes to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, People talk about all the time about like the idea of comedians being honest on stage or truthful on stage, and they always assume that has to mean like telling stories about their life or whatever. But f- seemingly for you, like you like jokes a lot, yeah. so it's honest to be like, "This is what's funny to me right now." Yeah, it, it's it's kind of like like people say, "Oh, see, Richard Pryor talked about his childhood and uh, the bad things that happened," and it's like, you know. I admire Richard Pryor, but then the other type jokes are good, too. How many jokes do you think you have memorized? Oh, God, that's a scary thing. <laughs> if it's something I need to know, mm-hmm. that I don't know. Yeah. Those I can, that I can't keep in my head. But if it's old jokes or like the assistant director in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, uh, that, that, that I could come up with. Do you think probably like... Over ten thousand jokes, maybe. Yeah, who knows? It's um, it, that's see. Now I want to hang them. myself and <laughs> jerk off. And <laughs> I thought you were going the other way. Um, so I was thinking back uh, to the Hefner Rose, which I watched. Uh, I believe I was in high school, and I realized you were in your forties. Yeah, <laughs> where I feel like if I had a guess at the time, it would have close put you closer to the age you are 
now. Um, <laughs> did you? What did you like about sort of feeling like a throwback at the time slash seeming like an old Jew when you were a middle-aged <laughs> Jew? Uh, and now, as you are closer to being an old old Jew, uh, do you feel like you've aged into your persona? I well, sometimes I wonder: is there anything? Is there any such thing as a young Jew? I think uh, I think uh, Jews are born like, oh boy, ah, when's someone gonna wash me off? This look, I feel old. Ooh, and sticky. What's going on here? <laughs> uh, but even on stage, do you feel like, yeah, this is how I should have, this is how, this, I'm as old as these jokes should be told. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. Now it feels like, uh, yeah, I, I don't feel like, like any of the parts I played, I've been like the Jew behind the desk. <laughs> so I am like, I don't think it's like they're going, He's not young and vibrant enough for that. Is there something about telling these old jokes that is not unlike your podcast where you like keeping certain things from culture still around? I I like the idea of, you know, bring out these people. It's kind of like when they used to have Love Boat mm-hmm. and Fantasy Island. And someone would pop up who you had swore were dead or you'd go, uh, who is that guy? I'm not really sure. And then you'd remember and go, Oh, they're as good as ever. Yeah. Just like these jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Many years ago, I, I worked um, at a talent agency, oddly enough, for this joke. And, and, and a family And a family in. walked yeah. in. Yeah. No, there's uh, a client that I the name, name of Gilbert Gottfried called his agent, and I picked up the phone, and uh, someone was talking, and they're like, oh, can you tell them? And I was like, oh, what's your name? Because I had no idea it was you, because yeah. your normal speaking voice, your everyday I'm making phone call to my agent voice— yeah is not the Gilbert Gottfried voice. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, in, in the documentaries, uh, the, especially in Gilbert, people like describe, like, oh, he's this sweet, quiet guy off stage, but on stage he, f- he feels free and like he's really himself. But is that correct? Because it seems like you are more comfortable being the on stage and sort of less like yourself. Uh, so, like, is the persona, like, your deep, dark inner truth or sort of the opposite of, like, a shield against whatever your yeah, truth is? Yeah, this, this goes in that whole Jekyll and Hyde thing. Yeah. Uh, depending on who's playing it. There was Spencer Tracy, <laughs> Frederick March, a silent version with Sheldon Lewis, uh, the John Barrymore version, sure. um, on a bunch of others i think kirk douglas did in a tv version do you feel more like you are jekyll that turns into hyde or hyde that turns into Jekyll? yeah see that's a tough one yeah because i mean i at this point i feel like both are kind of me and and i i hit upon it in the documentary because i always think of that scene from wizard of oz where he says i ignore that man behind the curtain because he wants to be yeah. the big powerful wizard, and but it's like for you, you spend, and especially for I imagine the Wizard of Oz, he spends tons of time being that guy too. Yeah, so it's not like he's not the, he's both the guy behind the curtain and the guy, yeah. the big green head. So that's what you feel like both. Yeah. So it's yeah, I'm I'm basically both. <laughs> yeah. Um, your sister Arlene was also an artist. Uh, 
She was a wonderful street photographer and a gospel singer. Uh, do you feel like what you do, stand-up comedy, is similar to either of those in any way? Be- before she passed away, did you have conversations about the sim- similar the about the similarities or differences of your chosen art forms? Uh never really. Nothing ever that deep. In in fact, uh, I think in the documentary it's still there. Someone asked Arlene, "What do you and Gilbert talk about?" And and this was absolutely true. Uh, she said, I don't know, mainly seltzer. <laughs> and it would be like she'd tell me like at the uh, supermarket three blocks from her house that there would be a sale on, on seltzer. seltzer. Sure. She liked drinking seltzer. So sometimes I would take the uh, shopping basket she had and we... <laughs> And I'd buy a big carton of seltzer. So this is the deep conversation. But I guess not even in terms of conversations then, just in general, knowing what she did, do you relate to, you know, a street photographer goes out without knowing what they're doing Uh, and capturing? Do you you relate to parts of those things? Yeah, with her, first of all, she was, like, attracted to, like, the underbelly, the stuff under the rock. Like when New York used to be just slummy all over the place and these abandoned buildings and junkies and gangs, she she would be really, she would run over and want to take pictures. Uh, and she wasn't scared yeah. of it. She wasn't scared and she didn't look down on it. It was just, uh, it was fascinating to her. And you, do you feel like the aristocrats is your version of that? It's the I, scummy part of the... <laughs> human brain that you are not looking down upon uh, yeah <laughs> it's my version of seltzer sure yeah <laughs> fine so in the aristocrats documentary someone said uh each person's version of the joke is is holding up a mirror to themselves what does your version say about you uh that i like when animals come in and and fuck me <laughs> Your Dirty Jokes DVD ends with a title card saying, based on Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller. First, oh, why, but as a touring as a touring stand-up comedian, do you relate to Willie Loman? Well, oh, I, I've often said, like with my podcast, I've, I've often quoted Death of a Salesman with attention must be paid. Because mm-hmm. I like to quote uh, Arthur Miller. My other quote from Arthur Miller is, hey, I just fucked Marilyn Monroe. Do you relate to the traveling? Do you feel like you're a traveling salesman sometimes? Oh, my God. When I am traveling, when I'm out of town and I'm lugging my suitcase around, it, I mean, it still feels I, – I don't know how it took them so long to say, hey, put wheels <laughs> on a suitcase. That was – it seems like that should have been when they invented – because I remember years being without wheels, yeah. and it was just really. But now lugging it is still, or I still feel like a traveling salesman. You you mentioned that you uh, hope that uh, the the club owner is going to cancel anytime, every time you go on stage. My my fantasy is always that I'll be waiting backstage, and the owner will come back and say that. There was a fire or a flood, and now uh, the place is, uh, has been destroyed. Here's your check. You can go home. Now. Have you ever had a show that was canceled? That you and did it feel actually like a relief? 
<clears throat> I've never had it canceled where I was backstage. But I've had it canceled a lot of times where I'll be booked someplace and for some reason, <clears throat> you know, the place will go out of business sure. or it'll be a different owner, it'll switch over. And I'll say, oh, that, that job's canceled. And I'll go, oh, what a relief. Why do you still do it? Have you considered you could cancel the dates yourself by just not booking them? It, yeah, that, w- that would be too much control of my own life, maybe. Sure. Um, and as we, you know, it, it is what you do. You know, in the uh, Gilbert documentary, Anthony Jeselnik describes you as the ultimate comedian's comedian. What, what does that mean to you? It means the audience doesn't find me funny. <laughs> what is there? And so, okay, on the other side, what does it mean that comedians do? But it it is when you say the so and so so and so is always like, <clears throat> you know, if if you say the musician's musician, it means this is someone who like uh, they they know what's crap and what's good, you know, and they they have a much higher standard. Do you think you'd you like that more than if the audience liked you? <laughs> Some audiences yeah, yes. like you, but you'd rather be a comedian's comedian than an audience's comedian. Uh, well, if I could be a comedian's comedian and still get booked as much and still paid the same amount. Do you have uh, any any stories of any other times you did the aristocrats in sort of a weird place or uh, any other times you did it that you remember? Um, particularly no- notable good times, bad times, the longest lasting one. I remember one time being on stage and I started being dirty and somebody uh, 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 yelled out, hey, I'm here with my five-year-old daughter. And and I said, well, do you often take your five-year-old daughter someplace to get drunk? It's like the regrets in itself, but yeah, much yes, tamer. Yes, yes. The act is uh, taking a daughter just to see a show. Ah, oh my God, yes. I, I, I think I was in in Rochester, New York, and there was a club. Can't believe I almost forgot this one. There was a club that by law <clears throat> had to have a deaf interpreter on stage. Now, I, I very rarely, you know, I don't do the aristocrats sure. that much, but I thought, Holy shit, to be able to do the aristocrats and be that gross, that disgusting, and that perverted, and have this woman act it out? Holy Christ, I have to. And and I immediately walked over next to the uh, <laughs> deaf interpreter and said, Family walks, and by then the audience went out of their minds because they knew what was going to happen. And I'm there, and I'm watching the woman as I'm saying it, saying, and the son blows his father, and then the dog is fucking the mother. And and she acts out all of it. And I got to say, I admired her greatly. (laughs) (laughs) Were there deaf people in the audience, or do they have to be there regardless of their deaf? Uh, I there was some. You know, that's the funny thing. The reason they got her is because some deaf guy complained that uh, 
they they need to have a deaf person as an interpreter. And uh, then they said when they did it that uh, this guy was complaining that it wasn't the proper interpretation. And and they said, this step guy's a total prick. (laughs) We tried to feel sorry for him. (laughs) We really wanted to feel bad for him. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's it's called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a a laughing round. Um, I want to see if you know... Um, is my Bubby's favorite joke. It's my favorite joke. And I want to see if you know it and if you would tell it because I'd love to hear you tell it, which is, it's I'll say the beginning of it, which is about um, a nun who dies and goes to heaven and they're sort of walking her through heaven and, the, and she hears horrible noises. Oh, I don't know if I know this one. So a nun dies and goes to heaven. Let's say her name is Marie. And St. Peter's like, thank you, Marie. You live such a wonderful life you're in heaven, this is your moment to relax or something. And so St. Peter's like, follow me, I'll bring you to Jesus. And so they're walking along the clouds, and she hears a horrible, terrible, blood-curdling noise. And Marie's like, what is that noise? He's like, oh, um, they're just drilling the holes for the halo. Don't worry about it. It's customary. So she keeps on walking. She hears a notable worse noise than the first. And she's like, what is that? It's like, oh, they're drilling holes for the wings. And she's like, okay. And then she gets to the entrance of heaven, and Jesus is there. It's like, thank you again. You live such a wonderful life. And the the nun goes, I think I'm going to pass. And she's like, you know what the alternative is? You go to hell. Uh, You'll get stabbed. You'll get raped. You'll get sodomized. And the nun goes, well, at least I have the holes for that. You really See, hadn't heard that joke before? I don't think so. And the joke the joke that I thought it was heading toward isn't as funny. <laughs> but I'll tell it anyway. Sure. Mother Teresa dies and goes to heaven. And uh and they give her a little halo over her head. And she's walking around heaven and she runs into Princess Di. And Princess Di has a tremendous halo over her head. And Mother Teresa gets really pissed off. And she goes to St. Peter. And she goes, I can't believe it. I've worked with starving children and lepers my entire life. And I get this tiny little halo. And Princess Di gets a giant halo. And uh, St. Peter says, Oh, that's not a halo. That's a steering wheel. <laughs> What's the, the shortest joke you can think of? Uh, the, well, the woman who lives next door to me must love candy. All night long, she yells, oh, Henry, oh, Henry. Do you remember the first the first joke you remember learning and the, the last you remember telling before? To- oh, well, here, this is funny. My book is Rubber Bowls and Liquor. And I sell it on my website, sometimes at clubs. But that joke was, uh, okay, everything I say, you say rubber balls and liquor. Rubber balls and liquor. (laughs) I I feel like I already know where it's going, but okay. Okay. Uh, I was walking down the street. Rubber balls and liquor. 
Uh, I had lunch. Rubber balls and liquor. I went for a drive. Rubber balls and liquor. Uh, what are you going to do with your girlfriend tonight? Rubber balls and liquor. See, that was one of the first jokes I heard as a kid. That first dirty joke. And and it's so weird because your balls in it are obviously breasts. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, but it sounds like... Wait a minute. So you're going out with uh, transsexual or yeah. something? Uh, you're, she she has testicles. Your girlfriend. So, but yeah, that was one of those. That. What's your favorite joke you uh, remember saying at one of the roasts? Not the, not including the aristocrats or the 9/11 joke. I I remember. Oh, at at the uh, David Hasselhoff roast, I said uh, they, it's it's been said that David Hasselhoff has sold uh, 10 million albums in Germany. But like so many stories that come out of Germany, these numbers are probably inflated, (laughs) if not an out-and-out hoax. (laughs) So to close it out, I I wonder if you'd uh, do a... It can be clean or not be clean. You mentioned uh, one minute or last version of the aristocrats. Family goes into a talent agent's office. He says, tell me about your act. So they take their clothes off. They fuck each other and they blow each other. And he says, "Uh, what do you call yourself? The aristocrats. 13 seconds. Hey, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. That's it for another episode of Good One. Gilbert Gottfried's Dirty Jokes is available wherever you buy or stream music. Follow Gilbert on social media at Real Gilbert. Good One is produced by me and Mike Comte with production assistance from Justin and Molly and research help from Serena Devi. Justin, you write to our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.